Hello, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR family of podcasts. This week's episode of From the Silo is an episode of Words Matter from September of 2022, where Norman Kavita discussed the immigration policy and political stunts of Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. This episode contains an originally members-only segment, so if you want more content like this every week, please consider becoming a member. We hope you enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. It's the card they're playing right now because they don't have a whole lot else. And Dr. Kavita Patel. I am deeply more concerned in a way. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to talk about especially people who do not lead. We're going to touch on immigration. There's so many aspects to this, of course, recently in the news. The spotlight has been put on Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida and his literal busing of migrants who came to Florida to Martha's Vineyard to make a point. We'll touch on that. And then in our bonus content for members only, and we want to hopefully poke you to join us as members, we will talk about Tish James and have a brief conversation that hopefully we can expand upon in future episodes. So. On with the show. All right, Norm, I'm going to set this up because something that probably listeners don't know, I've actually been part of, since I speak Spanish, I've been part of this group that volunteers that used to just meet on Sundays when Governor Greg Abbott in Texas was regularly sending and had proudly announced, and it's been almost a year, by the way, a little over a year, in fact, that he had been proudly sending anyone who comes into Texas on a bus directly with a ticket to Union Station in Washington, D.C., this has been going on for a long time. There's a group of us. It used to just be once a week. It's now actually almost daily. And uh, the group has very loosely formed, no media, no cameras. Occasionally, we've used kind of our like insights to for advocacy purposes with Mayor Muriel Bowser, of which the Bowser administration has generally been pretty receptive. And this is literally buses of people who have no idea where they are generally only speak Spanish, or if they have been told, interestingly enough, a significant proportion who have been told, you're going to go and meet your family because they have family in other parts of the country that they're trying to get to. And so those are all the kinds of things that I can go into so many examples where a 21-year-old boy, a young man that I met several weeks ago, had his prosthetic leg separated from him at some point when he was put on the bus to come to DC. So he's literally landing at Union Station without a prosthetic leg, without even understanding where he was. And so there's a series of events like that. And those are what you really don't hear about in the media. And then here we have Ron DeSantis. And there's so many things that I can say about this. But Norm, I wanted to just set that context that It's not just this Martha's Vineyard stunt. Obviously, Greg Abbott's been doing this for a while. Actually, DeSantis has too. I just want to read a quote from Mitch McConnell, because you had obviously Republicans uh, and Mitch McConnell, who himself is married to an immigrant, uh, former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. This is a quote from him. There's been a good deal of talk about what some of the governors have done to transport illegal immigrants up to other parts of the country. I personally thought it was a good idea. But if you added up all the immigrants who've been taken to Chicago or Washington or Martha's Vineyard, it would be fewer than people down in Texas have to deal with on a daily basis, close quote. Norm, 
just some of your thoughts, and, and maybe if I can impose upon you to give listeners a way to think about n- not just this stunt, the Martha's Vineyard, the spotlight, but what this is saying in general, and by the way, Biden is part of this and has responsibility, kind of this lack of like an immigration kind of policy in the United States of all places. So let's you know, first reflect on the, the words of Mitch McConnell, because words do matter. Illegal immigrants, he said. These are not illegal immigrants. These are asylum seekers who, under the law, having gotten to the border, seeking asylum, are on perfectly legal grounds to be able to have a hearing to see if they are eligible for asylum. So Mitch lied right there. The words were inaccurate, and saying inaccurate is giving more credit than he is due. In this instance, the ones going to Martha's Vineyard were Venezuelans. Just as a little side note, this might well backfire politically on Ron DeSantis running for re-election. He's still a favorite. It's a still more a red state than anything else. There are a lot of Venezuelan Americans, and these were people fleeing the murderous Maduro regime. So he's, he picked the wrong group. Let's start with that. Let's talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis, who I have frequently called the American Victor Orban. The problems that Ron DeSantis has caused in Florida, including basically manipulating the data on COVID, firing and then trying to arrest the woman who was in charge of the health department, who was giving accurate information, the manipulation that he has done with the police, with teachers, now trying to basically get rid of the public education system. This is an evil man, in my judgment, and this is only one element of it. Now, let's talk about what happened here. In effect, what we know is that these people who came in from Venezuela, who weren't sure what they were doing or where they were going, were basically lured onto a plane, being told that there were jobs and housing available for them in Massachusetts. They were given distorted documents to suggest that. And to me, it's not much different than a guy pulling up in a van and telling kids, hey, come into the van. I've got candy and a puppy for you and abducting them. It's kidnapping. Now, you know, he tried to make it have a semblance, a gloss of legality by taking migrants from Texas and having them land briefly in Florida because under Florida law, he at least had some money available to deal with people who were illegally in Florida. They had no intention of going to Florida. And we also know that he paid a huge amount of taxpayer dollars to a donor to do the flights then didn't notify anybody in Martha's Vineyard, any of the authorities there, that these people were coming. So the gloss that others are trying to put on this, the words that are being used, I just saw conservative CNN saying, well, he was offering them a place to go where they could actually be in fine shape. You don't do that and then not tell anybody that they're going there. It's just a cruel and outrageous stunt that violates the law. And let me say, it's not just Ron DeSantis. We also know now that cronies of his in the Department of Homeland Security 
gave false information, including false addresses to these poor people and told them that they had to register with an agency that had nothing to do with the registration so that they could be declared illegal and deported. And I am hoping that Secretary Mayorkas will take action against the miscreants in his own department who have been culpable in all of this. So this is all a context. What Ron DeSantis did, I believe, is illegal. It's kidnapping. We know he's being investigated by a sheriff in Texas. There may be charges brought against him. He did it only for political purposes. But we also know, Kavita, and it's a larger subject, that we've got a big problem with the border, that it's a problem that hasn't been solved, that it's one where every effort that we've made to try and come up with a reasonable and balanced immigration policy has been thwarted. We had one that passed the Senate some years ago with broad bipartisan support. Republicans in the House killed it. There's something else we ought to say here as well. You could seal off the southern border in theory. In reality, you can't. It's a huge border. But we also know that people who are in this country illegally, far more of them come in on legal visas and just stay. So we're not going to resolve a problem just by saying, okay, we're going to block people from coming in over the border. And at the same time, we also know that, as we see with this poor group of people, we know that we have huge numbers of people seeking asylum for good reasons on their part. Families are being shot and killed by gangs, by police, by rogue governments. And we have large numbers of people who want to come to the United States. Our policies allow them to seek asylum. We just have not put the resources or focused at all on what we can do to make sure that we have a process to deal with it. And that's not going away anytime soon. I always feel like these issues might nudge Americans as voters to put immigration into like one of their top issues that they think about when they're voting. It never has penetrated, at least up until now, I have not seen polls that reflect like, yeah, it ranks right up there. And it's often, as, as you well know, described as a third rail. I actually want to just remind listeners about Title 42, because I think this also is where we see this complex web of the Trump administration putting in these policies under the convenience and rubric of the pandemic, Title 42, which is one, and then having continued and Biden administration keeping Title 42 in place. Just to be clear, Title 42 is regulatory language that allows the CDC specifically to be able to kind of take border action. There's more complicated than that, but basically it allows for public health authorities to take action that can, quote unquote, protect the public health of our country. You know, at the time, especially with high numbers of, of COVID all around the globe, it's the same kind of equivalent of asking for people coming into the United States to take tests. That was the same, like Title 42 was invoked in order to be able to basically keep people in cages at the border. And that's something that it continued into the Biden administration. And at the time, Trump argued it could reduce the spread of COVID-19. Biden chose to keep Title for the administration chose to keep Title 42 in place, and they've actually used it to expel. And, and I hate thinking of export as a product, but that's literally what they've described it as more than a million migrants just in this past year, 12 months alone. 
And that's all on the heels of the president declaring the pandemic over. And and I will be the first to tell you I am a public health medical professional, and this policy does nothing to protect public health. And so I think part of this reliance on the Trump era policy, specifically Title 42, is that it actually allows the federal government kind of a convenient way to avoid dealing with the really thorny, ugly, operational humanitarian challenges of immigration. And actually, so just another, since these are words matter, and we want to give balance, we talked about McConnell, I just mentioned some criticism of Biden continuing Title 42. The press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, mentioned on the heels of a lot of the attention about Ron DeSantis potentially sending people to uh, Delaware to where President Biden has a vac- has one of his residences, his home. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said that Biden had introduced comprehensive immigration reform, quote unquote, but the reality is Democrats don't have the numbers they need to pass it in the Senate, close quote. So those two things can be true. Biden introducing comprehensive immigration reform, the Senate not having enough numbers, But a third truth is absolutely possible where we are not going to see any administrative action or executive branch action that could cause political blowback for Democrats. And so that's, I have to add that third part because there are certainly executive actions and things that that the White House could do aggressively, but it is no secret whatsoever, Norm, that that would probably put a number of moderate Democrats whose Senate seats are at risk at real peril in the midterms, and probably Joe Biden himself. One thing I found myself constantly faced with as a very like kind of naive person early in the Obama White House is we elected a president who we know can do the right thing. He knows right from wrong in in a very like basic sense. And then all the politics enter in. And then you start to think, if I want this president, this man to have this longevity, to have eight years, that means we're going to keep Guantanamo open. That means we're not going to do DOMA in the first two years. That means we're going to make decisions. And I see that playing out here too, Norm. So tell me, tell me how you think DeSantis's hand, which clearly is something he's doing for both midterms and his own peacock puffery of a potential presidential bid. Contrast that with the fact that I don't even think Americans care about immigration right now and don't necessarily feel as disappointed as I do, even in the Biden administration or the Democrats right now. Let's put this into a broader context. And then I want to come back to another reality, which is the Department of Homeland Security is broken, has been for a very long time. And we have a lot, it's a terrible culture. It's a culture that was worsened when John Kelly was the Secretary of Homeland Security and his successors. It's not clear to me that Mayorkas has done a lot to deal with that. That's one part of it. But let's face it, part of the reason for doing this stunt now by DeSantis wasn't just to enhance his own presidential prospects. And the way in which it's been handled is Republicans have been desperate to change the narrative. They don't want the words in the campaign and in the public eye to be about Dobbs and 10-year-olds who are pregnant who can't get an abortion, including those who've been raped by their fathers or uncles. They don't want the dialogue to be about Donald Trump on the dock because of his own corruption or because of the incitement on January 6th. Immigration is a way to keep their base excited and to change the narrative. And so it's not just about 
these people being pushed to Martha's Vineyard or they were trying to get another group to go to uh, Biden's home in Rehoboth, uh, Delaware, his uh, beach house. But it's also about fentanyl. And that's a, a part of it that I find sort of amusing because I see a set of tweets every day from Ronna Romney McDaniel, the Republican National Committee chair, and others where they've seized 167,000 pounds of fentanyl at the border as if that's a bad thing. You know, they're trying to say that the open borders are what's contributing to the opioid crisis and uh, the drug problem in the country. And there's no question that the southern border is a place where drugs come across, but we're actually having more success at seizing those than anything else. But this is all an attempt to change the words that are out there in the campaign and to get their base, which is now divided over the abortion issue, where they know that there's been an overreach there, and turn it into grounds that are more comfortable for them. And the nativism that's been a part of American culture going way back, it's stunning to watch in this context today, this just powerful documentary series of Ken Burns and Lynn Novick on the American response to the Holocaust and the attempts to keep out all of the Jews fleeing uh, Germany and Eastern Europe it's playing on that anti-immigration sentiment that's always been there and trying to make that the dominant issue of our time. I think you're right. I don't believe it will work terribly well, but it's the card they're playing right now because they don't have a whole lot else. Let's say that we do keep the Democrats are in a very kind of positive tailwind right now with you know, even potentially picking up some seats in the Senate and also kind of narrowing. I don't think they have enough still to get a majority in the House, but still kind of narrowing, narrowing. But yet, unfortunately, kind of dealing with a Republican controlled House and uh, Senate that might be a little bit more Democrat, but still when you factor in moderate Democrats, pretty hard to get some of this policy through. So I will even go so far as to say, since I've spent now 20 years kind of thinking about these policies, it, to me, it's very clear that it, once we can get past the midterms, no question to me that the administration has to do through kind of reform of Mayorkas' DHS, which you're right, is going to basically be a rebuild. Meanwhile, also taking executive action for things like Title 42, for things like safe havens. I mean, we've had so many mayors who have been put on the line for creating kind of safe havens and, and declaring declaring like sanctuary cities for immigrants, but it means nothing, Norm, when you have people who have been, as you point out, lied to, told that they actually have jobs or being reunited with family as they seek asylum. And then even more disturbingly, one of the things that I've mentioned to Biden and even in the Obama administration is that we put so much attention on, on women's rights, reproductive justice, that's even become more dramatic now. We have done nothing for that in terms of a pathway for women or families seeking asylum. And many of, when you look at surveys done by both nonprofits as well as it, surveys done kind of by NGOs in the field and in other countries from which people come to seek asylum, domestic violence is actually one of the like top three causes. So it is very clear to me that there are things we have to do. So if getting past the midterms and getting people who are listening to Words Matter, getting out and voting, but thinking about immigration, even if it's not one of your top three issues, this, I think, then putting pressure after we get past that 
is something that I'm looking forward to. And I'm sad that it's going to take lives in between now and then to actually make that happen. Because as we speak, there are people, I just checked um, this kind of communication that we use between this group of us in D.C. Let me just read to you what's come in the last hour. I had someone in New York contact me whose sister's family just supposedly landed here in front of Union Station trying to figure out how we can reconnect. We have two minors who just came off of a bus. Is there anyone who can help to try to connect this family with these two children? And then here we have another, just another one. Buses went to Chicago and New York City over the last two days, but they're still sending many migrants here. Please keep an eye here so that we can try to reunite people and include having some place for these people to sleep overnight. So it's just a very interesting, six buses arrived in New York City this morning, and we're expecting 300 people here in D.C. today or tomorrow. So I think there's just a very kind of real on the ground, like what's happening, and then you have these like every now and then convenient headlines that DeSantis can penetrate through for celebrity. But uh, hopefully Americans and especially our listeners can understand the toil of how harrowing it must be to come to a country that people thought could be your solace, could be at least a place to find just a better opportunity, not asking for a handout and then being duped, as you said, the, the equivalent of the kitty van. And the cruelty here is the point and the abject cruelty. And, you know, it, it just I just keep coming back to. Barney Frank's wonderful characterization of pro-life people who believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth. The lack of interest in the humanity here by people who call themselves pro-life, I just find so unsettling and appalling. They're not treating people who are coming here, just as you say, who are fleeing domestic violence or worse as people. It's really pretty awful. We will continue. We have a couple of these um, topics that we are constantly, with our incredible production team, going to keep revisiting and also talking about maybe bringing on people. I actually have, I don't know if the name Ali Narani brings any bells, but he is one of my, he's someone we worked with closely in the Kennedy office um, and has, I think, one of the most sophisticated takes on kind of what we need to do in immigration. So maybe we'll bring him forward as a guest uh, for a future episode. So with that, let me thank everyone for joining us. We really would appreciate it, especially in light of how complex the discussion around words and how much they matter in society are. If you could rate, review, subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player. We're on all, we're on all of them. Um, and share this episode with your friends, especially this episode, if it strikes a chord with a conversation that's not getting enough light. And then if you like this and want to become more uh, uh, involved, become a member and get a bonus segment where today we're going to talk about uh, Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, and and her recent actions. Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Chris Cottmore, and the producer of our show is the wonderful Grant Haber. Next episode will be in your podcast feeds on September 30th. See you then. Welcome to our members for our members only section for Words Matter. We had so much we wanted to talk about, but we couldn't help but devote some time to the incredible words from someone who is quickly, I knew she would quickly become one of my new favorite uh, people to watch, but New York Attorney General Letitia James, 
uh, called people call her Tish. And she had this stinging sentence that I think truly, I mean, it must be the meme and viral quote of the century for some aspects. Claiming to have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. And that is my favorite. I actually do think that was like a mic drop moment. And she, but I, I have uh, poured through most of her 200 page plus. I'm not the lawyer and uh, Norm, I know, I know that uh, you're also, you know, not trying to give legal advice here, but I thought it was just a, I couldn't help as, as just somebody who has been hoping for this moment. It was just an incredible page after page, just going through all the things that we have been talking about for years, um, Trump Tower, Nike Town, the apartments, just every false and misleading statement, Mar-a-Lago, et cetera, for years that had been publicly touted, thrown into the public's face and unbelievable like lack of account- like accountability. And my, you know, desperately, my, my only kind of reading through this is like, oh my God, thank goodness. But why? So why did it take this much time? the post office hotel lease from Deutsche Bank loans. I, I, I couldn't believe it. But let's give a moment to shout out to Tish James for what I know is absolutely going to hopefully not not a pinnacle, but the beginning of this ascent in this woman's um, incredible career already. Norm, your thoughts, reactions, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read through the, the documents. Yeah. Any thoughts from there? It's extraordinarily powerful. Uh, example after example. Um, you know, there are a couple of people who I think are getting very nervous right now. One is the district attorney in New York lost two experienced prosecutors early on when it appeared he was not going to go forward with criminal charges, what is clearly a set of criminal behaviors, who now has the spotlight on him because this is so powerful, it's hard to imagine how you could avoid indictments. New York State itself. The second is the IRS commissioner, Charles Redding, who was picked by Trump, who's still there, who had major business dealings with Trump, who, among other things, resisted for four years giving up Trump's tax returns to the Ways and Means Committee in the House when the law was very clear as to what was there. And if I were Rich Neal, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, and uh, if I were uh, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron White, I would want to call in Mr. Reddick and ask him why he's not pursuing charges against Donald Trump for tax fraud, federal tax fraud, which actually amounts to close to a billion dollars. So that's, in a way, an aside. Trump is nailed with this. There are two defenses that you can see emerging from his lawyers. And remember that he had to do depositions in this case, as did his children. And they pled the Fifth Amendment hundreds of times. In a civil case, that can be used against you. So they've got big problems there. But one defense is, this is normal real estate practice in New York. Everybody does it. And when I heard that, I thought, this is like Lucky Luciano saying, Hey, Al Capone did it. Bugsy Siegel did it. I'm no different than they are. It's not much of a defense. And the other is, I didn't know what was going on. It was all done by Alan Weisselberg, the uh, uh, main accounting figure, and others. But my guess is there's plenty of evidence that Trump knew exactly what was going on. And while Weisselberg 
appears not to be willing to turn on Donald Trump directly. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of employees of the Trump Organization who also are complicit in this. Tish James referred this to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. If I'm a junior accountant working under Alan Weisselberg, I'm not going to fall on a grenade for Donald Trump. I don't have the resources to hire a high-priced criminal lawyer if I get dragged into this net. The willingness that the junior people will have to tell everything they know, including meetings they were in where Donald Trump was there, I think will be great enough that his exposure to this is now much, much greater. And you could see from his reaction in his interview with Sean Hannity last night, it's starting to unravel for him. Decades in which he managed to evade any consequences for criminal behavior, for manipulation. And it's one of the questions we have to ask. How was he able to do that? How were judges, prosecutors, and others basically not acting when all of this was fairly uh, evident? But now it's starting to tighten. The noose is tightening. And his reactions are going to be more and more outrageous and violent. We can't leave this, Kavita, without noting that even before Tish James made this extraordinarily powerful case. And you can't attribute this to honest mistakes or just a little bit of puffery. You know, you valued your property at 20% more than what it was worth. To lie and say that your apartment was three times the size that it is and valued at four or five or 10 times what it was actually worth to get loans, this is criminal behavior. But he held a rally in Ohio that was all QAnon and basically threatening violence. And the people around him, including Sean Hannity last night, are talking about, if you really go after this guy, there will be violence. We're heading into a difficult period. People who think Trump deserves to get nailed on this can be exultant over what Tish James did. But we all have to be a little bit nervous about what this maniac will do to try to avoid the consequences. Yeah, I think and just uh, the House took actions. I think it's important. It wasn't coordinated, but to your point about January 6th, the House taking actions around electoral votes, I think, was a way of insulating the future threat. And it's sad. I, 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 most people probably didn't even really notice because, you know, the House takes action. A lot of things that nobody notices. I definitely thought, you know, I had really thought of January 6th in that moment, Norm, naively as an isolated moment. This could never happen again, you know, because we, you know, Donald Trump was this one off. I think you're exactly right in kind of pointing out that whether it's Tish James and kind of the very appropriate charges brought forward or any other scenario. And honestly, any other scenario that doesn't even involve Donald Trump, that there is a very high possibility and threat of another January 6th. And whether that's done at state houses, the national stage, all of the above is possible. And I think that we should be doing more to protect against that because that's uh, to your, you know, just in, in one thing I wanted to just touch on before we go. Um, and and uh, I do think this will be at uh, playing out in, in a very kind of, uh, we'll see this playing out like in real world. I do think there's like a psychology. I think if you've, you and I have talked, spoken with Mary Trump, who has kind of always talked about the deep psychological disturbances, but it's, 
it is it is so disturbing on so many levels also how many people were involved in like the big lies not just the actual lies and the documents that we see but if you think about it this is your your um in in our public po- podcast for every for the public we talk about kind of the Ron DeSantis's and like the equivalent to like you know opening a van and and luring children in with puppies and candy I mean, everybody around Trump basically supported his mass, like just, I mean, this is somebody who's so psychologically disturbed. It's such a sociopath. And there's actually definitions of sociopaths. He fits many of those definitions. And this is something that I think we really, I am deeply more concerned in a way that people write this off as Donald Trump as a one-off and then literally having zero accountability for the web. And, and even Tish James and her, I just wanted to pull up and then we'll, we'll close out because uh, I want to get your last thought on this. You know, Tish James obviously had to name, it was Trump, Ivanka, kind of all the holdings, Eric Trump, the, all the different uh, revocable trusts, et cetera. This spreads far, much farther than that. I mean, Sean Spicer, like, I mean, how many people were got, I, I, I can't even start to name off. It's not just Bannon and all the people that got top billing. There's so many people that were a part of this. So Norm, what do you think might be coming? Do you expect anything more beyond New York, Georgia? What else could we look for that could also really dismantle the sociopathy? So there's one other element here, which was the inaugural funds, which was another huge slush fund. That implicates Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., who clearly lied about it to federal investigators. Tom Barrick, who ran that, is now uh, undergoing trial for not registering as a a foreign agent while he was trying to make more money. He might turn if it looks like he's going to be prosecuted. You know, this is a web of criminal activity that goes back decades that continued all through the presidency. And I think we're going to see an awful lot of places where now prosecutors are encouraged to move forward because it's all been apparent. The rock has been lifted up, the maggots underneath are clear, and it's going to go on for some time. But, you know, we have to worry about violence now and, as you say, about another January 6th down the road. We've given our listeners a lot to think about. I promise that uh, in future episodes, we won't let these strings go. But I want to thank all our members. You all are incredible and very supportive. And Norm and I look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Take care.